Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Numbers. On behalf of Weaver, I'm James Kent. Welcome to this in-depth discussion on succession planning moderated by Brad Jay, Weaver's partner in charge of middle market manufacturing and distribution services. Joining Brad are three industry experts, John Gorman, Managing Director of Owner Resource Group, Brad Wallace, LKCM Headwater Investments, and Kurt Germany, who leads Weaver's Valuation Services Practice. In this episode, Gorman, Wallace, and Germany will guide you through business valuation strategies when selling a business and provide tips and insights on estate and succession planning with current trends on top exit options. And now, Brad Jay will lead that conversation. Take it away, Brad. With that, I'm going to turn it over to each one of our uh, panelists to just give their self-introduction and maybe talk a little about about each one of their firms. John, I'm going to turn it over to you first. Thank you. I uh, appreciate the introduction, Brad. You know, I'm one of the co-founders of the firm, Owner Resource Group's been around for 13 years, and uh, we were really founded to work directly with business owners. And so, you know, what we really like to do is get to know businesses, get to know the business owners, and really help work with them to try and figure out how to grow and accelerate the growth of their companies. And so, you know, we've, we've now been doing that for 13 years. We've done about $1.1 billion of transactions with companies to support their growth. We really believe in kind of having a collaborative process. Um, we're not kind of a group that goes in there and says, you know, you sell, we buy. Uh, we like to go into a situation where we can figure out how to be successful together. And that's why we're called Owner Resource Group. So <laughs> we came up with that crazy name. Yeah, yes, that's, that's uh, very creative. So yeah, appreciate that, John. Appreciate you being with us today. Thanks. I'll turn it over to you. Why don't you give us a little introduction about yourself? Yeah. So Brad Wallace with LKCM Headwater Investments. We're basically a you know $23 billion investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas. Been with the firm for about 16 years now and kind of help lead our team that invests in the lower middle market. Kind of what sets us apart a little bit is that we're not an institutionally backed private equity firm like uh, maybe is more traditional we're uh, largely in-house capital, so about a third of our capital is going to be the firm, the affiliates, and also the investment team. And then we have uh, the other two-thirds that's primarily made up of high net worth families. So we take a little bit of a different approach in terms of holding periods. We have flexibility to own businesses for a little bit longer. Uh, I wouldn't say that we take a family office mentality, but it is largely like a family office because uh, when you're working for taxable families, that's kind of how you act and behave. Kind of like John, you know, look, we uh, take a collaborative approach. It's all about building companies. And we like to say that we uh, like to leave businesses better than the way we found them. And so that's kind of the mantra that we live by. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate you being with us as well today. Kurt, I'll turn it over to you. Sure. Thanks, Brad. Uh, well, as Brad mentioned, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Kurt Germany. I run the valuation services practice uh, here at Weaver. I've been doing this for a long time, but I came to Weaver by way of the acquisition of, of a uh, Texas based uh, boutique valuation and litigation consulting firm called HSSK. That happened almost two years ago. Our practice as it stands now is about 25 professionals. We're not in every Weaver office, but we're in many of them, including Dallas, Houston, Austin, LA, and now Oklahoma City. So we do just about everything in the world of valuation, but as it relates to the topic 
of the day, we provide valuation services that orbit around M&A transactions, both before and after. And that would include things like uh, you know, a pre-transaction valuation advisory, maybe like in a situation where a, a seller is looking for some validation against an unsolicited offer or indication of interest to buy their business, or they're looking for somebody who's not necessarily doesn't necessarily have financial interest in whether a deal gets done or not to provide some valuation guidance. Uh, we also provide quality of earnings review. We do that both on the sell side and buy side. That's through a, a sister practice to valuation called transaction advisory. We also do some complex capital structure conversions to, to kind of clean things up before maybe you know taking a company out, out to market. And then afterwards, we do purchase price allocation, all the sort of financial reporting elements and any kind of equity-based compensation type thing. So that's, I kind of view us as the support band that chases guys like John and, and Brad Wallace around and sellers like a lot of you who are on this panel and, and provide services to help you get deals done. So anyway, I'm honored to be on this panel today. We definitely appreciate our role in, in support of active buyers and sellers of businesses and we love helping get deals done. Thank you, Kurt. Appreciate that. Thanks for joining us today on the call. Uh, why don't we jump into it? The, the first thing, kind of the topic we wanted to kind of talk about was really some common readiness issues. You know, obviously there's some strategic considerations for businesses to really keep in mind when preparing their exit strategy and really just getting ready for a transaction. In relation to the common readiness issues, early in the process when, when someone's trying to, you know, think about this, what are some of the key items that you as an investor would be looking at when evaluating a potential transaction? Any investor is going to care about the financial information and having good quality financial information. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a, a strategic buyer, a private equity buyer, whoever it is, you know, making sure that you have accurate books and records uh, that somebody can look at, kind of tell people like, you know, just, just be prepared because if there's noise in your numbers, somebody will end up finding it. I mean, it's just kind of what happens, but that's just kind of, you know, uh, you know part of the basics. You really want to make sure you have, uh, all your contracts and things like that in order because diligence is always kind of a messy process. And if you're not organized, um, you know, it's, it's going to make it a longer process. And the longer a process goes, the more times they fail because you know, it just adds a lot of stress when something gets strung out. If you want to really drive value, you know, make sure that you got a good plan for growth because at the end of the day, growth gets you higher valuations. And, you know, if your company has been pretty steady year after year after year, uh, you're not going to get a growth multiple against that business, but if you can lay out for somebody how you're going to accelerate the growth of your business and where you can can take it, you'll get more valuation put on the table. So those would be some of the ones. There's there's a million of them, but those would be the ones that come come right off the top of my head. Okay, great. No, appreciate that, uh, Brad. What about your perspective? Well, yeah, I agree with John. I mean, that's he's spot on. I mean, at the end of the day, it's kind of like selling anything. If you're selling your house, you're going to get it prepared. I think one of the one of the things to think about is there is two elements of it from a buyer's perspective, what they think about. It's what does the business look like today? And it's everything that John just said, get the business ready, have good financial information that you're presenting. And then where's the business going? So nobody really buys a business for what it is today. They buy it for where it's gonna what it's gonna be. So whether that be kind of, you know, fully doing research and uh, you know, maybe have outside providers you know, get a better understanding of the market, the total addressable market that the business operates in, or the specific growth initiatives that the, co that the company specifically has. It's, it's better to know that story and to be able to tell that story before the buyers start coming in and before you have to start 
thinking about what the buyer universe looks like and who you do select. So uh, I just fully support everything John said, but it's, it's, it's basically getting your house in order before you, before you go through the process. I agree with that 100%. Kurt, what are you guys seeing on the, from the more buy side, sell side side on the, on the valuation side of things? So what we're seeing in this last year is, is to me similar in many ways to what we saw during the last widespread major market disruption, like 2008, 9, 10, where let's say the story behind the numbers that impacts valuation is more complicated to understand and it's sometimes harder to you know convey or communicate than it was uh, before. So February of 2020, before the world kind of tried to stop spinning on its axis, the story was easier to tell, right? It was after a nice long prolonged you know run of, of uh, stability, the story was kind of like, hey, next year is going to look a lot like last year and we're going to have some growth and you know here are a few challenges we're dealing with. But you know, I won't call it sleepwalking by any means, because I think we all kind of long for, for some of that stability again. But anyway, I think these days it's really imperative to be able to demonstrate a deep understanding as a seller of a business of how, how that business was impacted, both positively and negatively, to avoid leaving money on the table. And I think, uh, you know, mo- most importantly, if there are any permanent impacts to the business, positively or negatively, you know, we want to make sure we, we know how to reconcile that to what it was like pre, pre-COVID performance, you know, versus what's coming. Yeah, that's right. So maybe, uh, Brad, going back to you on this, just kind of a follow-up here, you know, in relation to some of these things, you know, what are some things that you guys consider to maybe be a, a non-starter when evaluating a business? Look, I mean, every investment firm or private equity firm pretty much has an investment mandate, right? They, they like to stay in their fairway of knowledge and everybody's different in that regard. I would say one common thing, I, look, a lot of times I'm not a believer that, that nothing is a non-starter. It just means that you're not as going to get as, better, as good a value on your business. I think a lot of investment firms look at is, is equal alignment post-close. So if, if we're looking at an opportunity and a seller who may own 100% of the business says, I'm selling, I'm out, I'm leaving day one, and I want to sell 100% of the company. Uh, I'm not saying that's a red flag for us, but it's just not a transaction that we'd want to get involved with. We want to have equal alignment with the sellers where they're rolling a portion of their capital back in as either equity alongside us. Sometimes that can come in the form of seller debt. That's a way of kind of voting in favor of the business. And a lot of times it's, uh, it's their involvement. So if you think about evaluating a business, it's not evaluating the business, but it's evaluating the people. So the, the leadership has absolutely the intellectual capital that you're buying. And so making sure that you maintain the intellectual capital that got the business to where it's good, where it is and where it's going is important. If you want to sell hundred percent of your business, I just don't think that you could expect to get top dollar in the, in today's environment. Bu- buyers want to see equal alignment with the sellers. John, what, what about your perspective on that? I mean, I, I agree with Brad that, you know, alignment's such a big thing. Um, you know, in, you know, a deal killer for us is a conflict of interest. But unfortunately, we had it occur at one point with a, a transaction we did a long time ago at this point where we did a transaction and uh, the business owner had a sister company, I would call it, not the same exact business, but, you know, ended up, uh, we did a transaction where we ended up owning 70% of one company and he retained 100% ownership of this other company, which unfortunately got in trouble. And when that company got in trouble, our CEO at the time spent all his time on the troubled company. And uh, 
about six months later, we realized uh, our numbers were going down really badly. We found out that he's only been working at the other company for six months. And so, you know, for us, it's a non-starter. Uh, it goes back to Brad's alignment. You know, we're either in it together or not. And to us, it's really who's going to be our partner. We've done transactions where there's an owner who sells 100%, but they're not going to be our partner at that point. At that, you know, in that situation, our partner is going to be the executive team. And, you know, we're going to want to see that they have a lot of skin in the game. You know, just driving that alignment is very key. No, I agree 100%. I think that's obviously key. And we see that a lot in the, in the, with our clients and transactions that they go through is, is that kind of situation where typically in almost every situation, you, you do see some, you know, the old ownership group does retain a percentage in the new business because they, they're the ones that, that understand the business better than anybody. And so having them still involved going forward just helps, helps everybody involved. John, let's stay with you on this. What are some things that the sellers, you know, as they're looking to, to get into this, this process to kind of help streamline the process in, in, in terms of the requests that are going to come in and just get ready to initialize the sale of their business? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I'd recommend any seller do is do their own quality of earnings before they try and sell their business. If you can make it through a quality of earnings, you're probably pretty well organized from a financial statement perspective as well, which just helps prepare you. You know, we do it every company we buy and every company that we're selling, we do a quality of earnings before we sell the company. I also would recommend you have a very good transactional attorney that helps you get prepared, who's done several transactions in the past. You're not going to save money hiring a cheap attorney if you're going to do a transaction. It'll end up costing you ultimately. So it's better to get somebody who's been there, uh, done that, and can help you work through even a checklist before you end up trying to sell your business. So everything's organized and uh, makes the process uh, move along more quickly. You know, just reinforce the fact that, you know, having service providers that streamline the process of providing information in a timely and accurate way is super important. I mean, I think I know probably a a question that's kind of uh, brewing in folks' heads right now is like, what about an investment banker? Does an investment banker streamline a process? I mean, to the extent that you want to go to a broad set of audience you know, they sometimes do streamline that. It's, it's, it's going to, obviously, there's another fee attached to that. But uh, to the extent it's a, it's a business that you want to run a more narrow process, I think uh, if you've got five buyers out there that you're talking to that you know, buyers for the business, they can manage that process just as good as an investment banker can. So I hope there's no investment bankers on this call because they're probably, probably going to shoot me about for saying that. But, uh, but it is something that sellers wrestle with quite a bit. Yeah, it's a good perspective. I'll actually say, you know, to Brad's point on that, I mean, investment bankers serve a purpose and they do a good job, but it also depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Like, you know, we, we work, and I think Brad's similar to us, which is like, we really want to get to know the company. We want to get to know the people, you know, we want to try and figure out how to drive that alignment and be successful together. You know, I tell people if they're going to go through a banking process, go through it and sell your company and take, take the best price. Don't worry about your partner necessarily. Because, you know, it's hard to get to know somebody in 12 weeks of dating. And, you know, we look at it as we're going to be your partner for five to seven years. I know Brad even has a longer time horizon than that. That's a long time to be working with somebody. And so you want to make sure on the front end that you're going to work well together. Yeah, very, very important. So Brad, Jay, we have two Brads. So, to, uh, <laughs> so you know, for, just to pile on a bit there, I mean, from my seat as a valuation professional, 
mean, the standard kind of risk factors that the original question that started this thread was, you know, what are the non-starters? And the things that we always ask or, or, or explore with, you know, with our, with our clients as we're starting evaluation engagement are kind of the usual suspects around lack of, of depth of management. Even, even if the owner is not involved in multiple businesses, they might be, you know, one, one person working 70 hours a week, you know, really doing the role of CEO, COO, CFO, chief marketing, you know, all, all of that. So lack, lack of that depth of management or even a some idea of a succession plan, you know, how to remedy that or how to uh, how to bridge that gap. And then customer concentration is a big one for lower middle market, where you know, if we're talking about businesses that are 100 million in revenue, let's just talk about revenue, even though I don't like to do frame it that way as a valuation person, but, but it's helpful. So 100 million or 50 million in South, customer concentration is pretty common common issue and then poor reporting and controls that Brad, you made that point. It's rare that companies of that size have a super strong CFO who can just produce a good dashboard of, you know, key performance indicators and, and all of that. So, you know, we, we, we get into that obviously when we're trying to provide, provide insight. Like if you think about those cases where we get called in to do pre-transaction planning, you know, if somebody's two or three or four years out from doing a deal and they just want to know what, you know, what valuation is today and kind of what are the things that are hurting them from a valuation standpoint, what are the things that are, are helping them maybe and, and all of that. And so we get into that, but, you know, we kind of only, we have to rely on what, you know, what those management teams or those owners tell us. And we're not writing checks, you know, for at the end of our at the end of our project, we're trying to get, so in other words, if they want to cheat on that test, they're only hurting themselves. So how, how do you guys, right? I heard you mention, or maybe John, it was you said you've done a hundred percent deal for, for uh, companies where, you know, the owner didn't want to stick around and help it transition. So, so how do you really get past that network? Have you been able to get past that? Or can you share an example of a case where, you know, you fell in love with a company because of its product or where it was, but it had one or two of these red flags going. How, how did you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I could think of two situations. I know we did a transaction probably, uh, I think, four years ago at this point, and it had customer concentration. And that's a big red flag for us. Like, you know, and this had one customer that was 40%. And, you know, that's kind of scary. So, yeah, one, it obviously impacted the valuation. I mean, just in fairness, I mean, that's going to, you have customer concentration, even if the buyer can get over it, it'll impact valuation. In order to mitigate our risk and, you know, kind of bridge the gap on valuation, we actually put an earnout in place just to make sure we didn't take 100% of that risk on that customer. But then we knew we had to grow the business very aggressively and do add-on acquisitions. And so, you know, we made a pretty big investment in sales and marketing, ended up doing two add-on acquisitions. And now that customer is 6% of the business. We kind of had to go ahead and ourselves wide open, but then, you know, with, with a plan to mitigate it. You know, you can get through that. The company with 100%, I mean, really, we backed the management team. And, you know, it was a sharp management team. It was a young management team. You know, they were willing to put a lot of skin in the game. I mean, they all took out mortgages on their home to invest alongside of us. So, you know, we were feeling pretty good about, you know, their commitment. That's great. Why don't we move into the next topic here, really on more on valuation considerations. You know, obviously, anyone selling your business knows that having accurate business valuation is critical, especially some of the things we've been talking through here. It's, it's extremely important 
to, to know exactly where we are in terms of that valuation. It's going to drive the ultimate price that a, that a buyer is willing to pay. Um, Kurt, I'm going to start with you on this one as the valuation expert. So, you know, obviously, um, I think most people on this call, a lot of people on this call are familiar with the, uh, the PPP loans and that program that, that was around this last year. So obviously that's uh, something that a lot of businesses have had impact them. Kurt, from a kind of from a valuation perspective, how would how would those loans impact a company's valuation, if at all? You know, it, it, it certainly is an important factor. When we were planning for this call and kind of kicking around ideas, you know, I thought it was a big deal. I, I put it out there to John and to Brad Wallace, and they kind of shrugged it off like, well, look, you know, we can get a deal done around that. And that makes a ton of sense. You know, for us, it's it's it, it feels like it's a, a major issue that we have to deal with in every valuation. But the reality is it just distorts working capital. That's all. You know, you just don't know if you've got uh, a situation where you've got, you know, excess cash, or if you, you know, you don't know whether, you know, if you don't have clarity yet on whether that PPP loan has been forgiven, whether you've got that liability or not. And so from a valuation standpoint where we can't just set aside, set those things aside and wait and see what happens. That's why that's more of an issue for me uh, than it is probably for John or for Brad Wallace. Cause you guys just, you know, escrow the, the, the funds and carve out the liability and just wait, kind of see what happens. So that's a, I'm, I'm not really evading the, the question, Brad. I mean, it is, if, if we're doing a, you know, snapshot valuation, you know, right now, let's say for like trust in the state, you know, planning purposes where, where you've got to come down to one single point estimate of value that gets, goes into, uh, you know, gets stapled to the back of a gift tax return. You know, it is, a, it, it really is a challenge. So maybe, uh, but maybe it's not so much of a of a roadblock to getting a you know an actual M and A transaction done. That's fair, Brad. I know, and uh, you kind of mentioned that you guys have seen this on a few of your deals in terms of maybe by the time the deal closed, the, the loan had not been forgiven yet. Talk to us a little bit about how you guys address that. Yeah, I've got a uh, maybe a real live example going on right now where there's a three million dollar loan on the balance sheet. Sellers are fully expecting it to get forgiven, but it probably will not be forgiven at the time that we close. So how do you handle that? I mean, that could be a $3 million shift in value, depending on where that's up. And uh, wherever that ends up, you know, the funds will come out of escrow once it, once it ultimately gets settled. But the other impact it has is we are actually uh, challenging the, uh, the seller a little bit on the cost structure of the business through COVID. I think we're large on the other side of COVID, but uh, their cost structure kind of went up. And what what their argument is, which is a great argument, is, well, it's largely people cost. And I had a PPP loan to cover that. And I couldn't fire these people because of the requirements of PPP. Had I not had PPP, I took a totally different approach on how I handled the cost structure. Four companies that took on the loan, I mean, they had certain requirements that they had to live by. And I think I think buyers need to understand that and sellers need to be able to communicate that to, to sellers as well. Or to right. buy, yeah, yeah, and I, I think we've, you know, I had about three or four different situations here in the last year that clients had an exit that happened, either an acquisition or new new private equity group coming in, but had the loan still sitting on their balance sheet. In the same situation you just described, where it was just placed in escrow, just until it ultimately gets forgiven or not, and so those funds are there just to help satisfy that. Goes to the seller if it, everything gets forgiven fully. If not, then they've got some reserves there to kind of help. Yeah. One other challenge we're faced with on that particular transaction is that we're going to be $3 million short on cash day one relative to what our sources and uses were. From This timing issue has created a need to either fund more debt 
or put in more equity for this gap period until it gets resolved as well. Anyway. So that's that working capital distortion, right? That I was Got talking you. about. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But if you just scrape all that off and you know you're, you've got a cashless business going in, right, it's maybe a little easier to work around, yeah. but it's still, it's still an issue. I think a cash-free, debt-free transaction makes this a lot easier. But but doesn't it too, like, because if, if what, what, what we're saying also is, like, the PPP loans, I don't, I don't want to get political here, but, but you know, they, they largely did what they were supposed to do, right? You know, and was there some waste and some misallocation? Yes, of course, but, you know, they, they worked by and large. And, but still, you know, you, it doesn't mean that you don't have to unpack and understand, you know, what things are going to look like for this business coming, coming out of it. Because there are some, some businesses that took down PP loans, PPP loans and they qualified for it and they qualified for the forgiveness doesn't mean they've got a viable business or, or that the business is going to be as, as, as profitable as it was before COVID. Right. And so you still have to, still have to sort through that. No, absolutely. I think that's a good segue into our next kind of question here. And John, I'm going to start off with you on this. So, you know, outside of the PPP stuff, which we've been talking about, you know, obviously COVID has had an impact really negatively with a lot of businesses in the last year. So in terms of like if a, if a business had a valuation done maybe prior to the whole pandemic situation in the last couple of years, from your perspective, are, do you think those numbers would still be valid or do you think it's more something they might need to, you know, get an updated valuation uh, as, you're, as you're kind of evaluating everything in that process? I'd say it's probably not valid, you know, but that's just because markets change and, you know, if it's a couple of years old, it's, it's going to be different as to what your valuation is going to be. I probably say the the other thing that you know Brad's alluded to, which is is really one of the bigger challenges. Really, what's the business look like post COVID? There's a lot of dynamics post COVID that we're seeing. I mean, it could be you know the excess cost of freight for container ships, steel, rubber, plastic, labor. We actually have some call center based businesses, and you know, when unemployment's at you know three point two, three point three percent, you can't hire people. And so, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of trying to understand not just what happened to the business, but where the business is going, because it is a different environment. And, and that has some complexity, to, you know, trying to forecast, trying to understand what's going on, and then making sure that you've got a good strategy uh, once you close to help support the growth of the company. Yeah. So, so when, it, when, it, when you think about the post-COVID world, it's not only what negative impact happened to your business, but also what positive impact happened to the business. We, we've seen a lot of transactions recently from investment bankers on businesses that got a little bit of a windfall from, from the COVID environment. I mean, think about outdoor gear, camping gear, you know, the, the kind of in the home consumer behaviors that we've seen over the last, over the last year. And there is a question as to whether those earnings are sustainable. You know, some buyers give credit for that, some don't. I think it just largely depends on what the windfall came from and how it was developed. I mean, one example of that is PPE equipment. You know, so that's a lot of that's going to be here to stay. Is 100% of it based on what we've seen last year? Probably not. Normalizing earnings right now is, is a little bit challenging. I would say that uh, sellers are getting the credit for COVID addbacks. March, April, May, second and third quarter numbers last year. People aren't really looking at those for valuation purposes. It's more like what is the kind of the real time earning stream of the business over the last couple of quarters and maybe even the last few months since we're largely on the other side of COVID. Kurt, what about you? You, you know, working with some of our clients or what you're seeing on the valuation side, is that consistent with what you're seeing as well? 
Yeah, I mean that's the that's the challenge because you know where where we've had some uh, some businesses who have have experienced you know abnormally either high revenues or low expenses, right? You know, and and so if you if you just if you don't if you don't filter that view through you know what what you know is going on, you could get some some artificially high uh, valuations. Same thing the other way, but I guess what that that seems to be a recurring theme for me today, kind of beating that same drum. But I mean, it really requires, you know, all the expertise we can muster in terms of, you know, bringing experience into the valuation process, having done this in, you know, periods of disruption, you know, before where you've got a lot of uncertainty and it it really requires a lot of drilling into the forecast and, you know, how that's constructed, which is the process that, you know, we, a lot of times we would just get a forecast from our clients. We would kind of test it against, you know, overall growth and kind of what the industry was pointing to. Well, that's not good enough anymore. You know, if you really want to get a good, reliable valuation, that's going to help you make decisions, you know, major decisions about, you know, exiting a, a business that is, you know, in most cases, you know, your single largest asset that you own, you know, you really, you really got to take the time to, to get under the hood and, and, and go through all that and answer those tough questions about, you know, what do we think this business is going to look like? What's the expense structure going to look like going forward? Not to pile on too much, but I, I mean, I think one thing that's important to note is we can figure out how to normalize for that. We can't figure it out with perfection. We completed three transactions post-COVID where we were able to, you know, knew the company well enough, did enough diligence, et cetera, that we, we felt confident that we could get to a transaction that successfully did it. I will say right now, we have a company uh, under LOI and the inverse is happening. Uh, they weren't open enough and analytical enough about what their normalized earnings were. And COVID probably had somewhere in the neighborhood of a 25 to 35% improvement on their earnings. And it's hard to put a and then exactly what they, you know, they were pushing for a fast sale, you know, hey, look at how great our growth is and you dig into it. And you're like, okay, well, you know, this isn't exactly how you explained it to us. And so, you know, I, I'd recommend people, if you're planning to go sell your company, you know, take that, take a real look, at, you know, and be honest about what you got because any sophisticated purchaser is going to uncover any noise like that. Yeah, it's a good point. Let's move into uh, some exit options. Um, you know, there's there's obviously, you know, a lot of different ways to get a deal done. But obviously with the challenges that I think a lot of companies faced over the last year, look at some of those options. So, John, from your perspective, or maybe let me start with Brad. What are the top exit options that you're seeing in the market right now? So, I mean, there's several. I mean, there's, you know, you can sell to a strategic, sell to a you know, a private equity firm, you can sell minority stake in your business, you can sell into an ESOP, sell into a SPAC, which is becoming popular. Uh, I think the first question you got to ask yourself as a seller is what do you want life to look like on the other side? What is the purpose? Is it liquidity? That's probably going to drive a lot of the decision, but I would provide equal weighting to what you want your role to be on the other side and what your partner is going to look like. So a misnomer is people come into a lot of conversations that we have and say, I want to sell, but I don't want to give up control. I don't want to sell more than 50% of my business. I have seen the worst partnerships with minority investors that come into transactions. They can be just as disruptive, if not more disruptive than a bad control partner. Look, we're in a world right now where sellers have a lot of options. And I would encourage folks to look at, you know, what they want life to look like. But most importantly, 
as John kind of alluded to at the beginning of the call, who do you, who do you want to hang out with? Who do you want you know, who do you want to be yeah. as partners side by side to try to grow the business and, and, and take it to the next level? When you think about selling 70% of your business, I think it's important to think about, you know, who can you grow your 30% the, the best with? Provide as equal weighting on that as you do how much cash I'm going to be getting at close. So that's what I would. Which is a great point. I mean, actually, it's not uncommon for someone to make more money on their second exit with us than they did on the because you know they'll maintain a big stake. You know, that's a great alignment of interest. We make a big investment in the company to help support and accelerate the growth of the business. And you know, you end up getting two things that typically happen, which is your EBITDA grow, grew, but your EBITDA multiple also grew because of scale. And so, you know, we've we've successfully had that happen on about actually every exit we've had, uh, but one. Our partner ended up making more on the second sale than the first. But I think Brad's exactly right, which is it's what what do you want to do? I mean, you know, if you cash out and go sit on the beach, you know, know what your answer is. If you want to make sure that you maintain your culture and take care of your people, you know, it's going to be a different type of group. It's just a lot of it is personality and fit. And I I always think like people should spend the time to think about what they want and what kind of personality fits well with them and their goals. Yeah. You know, John, one other other thing too, probably, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but what what I've seen at times is part of the reason why that second, second bite of the apple can be as big or, or, or as big as the first one is because, you know, if you're, if you're a business owner and you, find the right partner and you sell and you're still working because you still have, you know, uh, an interest, but now you're able to focus on all the things you like to do and you're good, good at doing, because I think that's one of the most common denominators of all of our clients who are in that lower middle market is, you know, they're doing everything, you know, they're just having to handle everything. Right. And you can't be good at, you know, managing your company's, uh, you know, HR function and, you know, marketing and, you know, IT structure and, you know, all of those things. And so, you know, if you can get that entrepreneur who was able to build that business, you know, that far and then couple with the right partner and then let them go go back in time almost and focus on the things that help them grow that business to that point in the first place. That's a, a great recipe for success. Yeah, I also think at the end of the day, this is typically 100 percent of, you know, this, this is this is somebody's net worth, right? Their company. And especially as people start to get older. <laughs> They don't want to take the risk on that asset, right? This is this is my legacy. This is my capital. You know, it's the biggest asset by far in my life. I got one shot at it, right? I'm not going to do it again when I'm 65, 67 years old. Like, and so there, you know, we see that there becomes a little bit of risk aversion. And you know what? We're in the business of risk. And so we're allowed to kind of unshackle a business a little bit. And that doesn't mean it was shackled per se. It just means like, you know, we're going to take a much more aggressive approach uh, than most uh, individuals would. Hey, Brad, uh, Jay, what, one thing I wanted to mention, you asked about exit strategies and exit alternatives. And, you know, I'm not an investment banker and I'm not a private equity professional like, like John or Brad. But, you know, the one thing I have seen that's worth pointing out is don't underestimate, you know, where you might fit into a, a structure if you're an owner of a business and you think you might be too small for a private equity firm. I would revisit that assumption, and especially if the audience here is primarily Texas-based or you know in this this part of the country, because you know we're we're seeing 
you know, more uh, either add-on acquisitions for PE firms or more of a focus on the lower end of the lower middle market, right? Uh, so it doesn't, you know, you don't have to be a $100 million revenue business to be a, a good, you know, private equity candidate. The same thing goes for strategic, potential strategic buyers as well. Right. And, and one final point, Brad, if I have a second, and that is that when you think about what you want life to be on the, on the other side, I think it's fair to think about that that could potentially be a couple of three steps. So if you're rolling 30%, yes, you're going to have another exit, but building alignment with your buyer about what you want your life to look like. We've been in a lot of situations where sellers say, I will continue to lead the company and I'm comfortable doing that. And I'm comfortable doing that for the next five years, but I want to build in a succession plan during our ownership so that we're set up when we sell in five to seven years that we have that set up and I can fully retire at that point. So I'll commit to being your leader when you own it, but I can't commit to being the leader for the next guy. I'd like, like to have that option, but I also, also like the building succession plan during that. It is your baby. It is a large part of your net worth a lot of times, but, but you know, you maybe think about it as a couple of different transactions, not just one. Fantastic points. And I wanted to make sure we hit on that because we are, I know in, in the dealings I have with my clients as we're talking through these types of things as they're looking for a potential exit down the road is to not think it has to be a one-time event. It, it very well probably should be and could be a two-time event. So you can have, and what we have seen, you know, honestly, is kind of what John and Brad alluded to was that, you know, that second exit can actually be more lucrative than the first. It really just kind of depends on where you are in the life cycle of the business, where you are in your age, all that kind of stuff, just, just things to consider. John, one, one thing that I'd really like to get your perspective on is you know, from a structure perspective, for you guys as a, as a potential investor or buyer, what, what's more, you know, what do you look at in terms of like, is it an S corp versus a C corp? And, and kind of what are some of the, the positives that you look at in, in one of those types of structures, just from a, maybe more on a tax side of things? We don't really care that much about a company structure at the end of the day. Um, you know, there's basically, you know, two types of transactions, an asset transaction, equity transaction. And, you know, we usually end up doing equity transactions, uh, not asset transactions. You know, it happens, but I think we've done one or two asset transactions in the history of the firm. So almost everything we do is equity based. You know, C-Corps, we're fine with a C-Corp. We're fine with it. We've, we've done C-Corps, LLCs, S-Corps and limited partnerships as far as transactions. So we've been involved with all of them. Uh, from us, it's beneficial when there's not a C-Corp and it is an LLC, an S-Corp, a limited partnership because you could just get a, you know, a goodwill benefit. But we, we don't, that doesn't drive a deal for us. You know, at the end of the day, what drives the deal for us is the company, the opportunity with the company and the team we're gonna be partnering with. We'll figure out a way to get a transaction done around everything else. Brad, what about you guys? Feel the same way. We're indifferent. We don't discriminate on size or uh, structure of a company. Yep, it's good, good to know. So, you know, one of the things that I think would be really interesting for, for everybody on the call to hear, maybe some war stories that you guys have uh, experienced over the years. Uh, maybe, Brad, talk about maybe a, a situation where you had uh, to overcome maybe some obstacles and kind of how you got through that process. I, so, I, I wouldn't say that I have a specific one that I would talk about. But I would say that there is a common theme with all of them, and they all have obstacles. <laughs> <laughs> so John made a comment earlier, you know, that uh, the, the most expensive thing you can do is hire a cheap attorney. I do advise that you do that. But I also advise that you, that you don't let attorneys necessarily drive the decisions because 
they do their job and that is they set up arrangements to make sure sellers absolutely know all the potential pitfalls that could, could exist. But I think it's up to the seller to do the diligence on the buyer to make sure that they are the type of people that they want to do business with. Don't ever be afraid to ask for references from other CEOs and CFOs that a, a private equity firm has, has worked with as an example. Do your diligence on, you know, do your own diligence on the buyer. But, you know, I can remember a, a working capital debate I got in on one of our more successful investments that was a couple million dollar working capital debate that, it, that was like three days before closing that I, I thought we weren't even going to close because it got so ugly. Well, I mean, it, it became forgotten by the time that we were one year in the investment and, you know, we were achieving all of our goals and we ended up making over eight times our money and the seller made two and a half times more on the 30% roll than he made on the 70% that he sold. So it was a great example John had earlier. Don't sweat the small stuff. The, the things that you get hung up on are the things that are least likely to happen. One other quick story, and that is that uh, it's important, I think, to make sure that you fully disclose everything to a buyer. Buyers are smart. They're going to find out at some point. We did have one example where we found out, but we found out too late that, a, that a, the largest customer of one of the businesses that we bought at, had actually already notified the company that they were going away, represented a pretty significant, call it 25% of the EBITDA. And we didn't find out about it until after we closed and we were in the first board meeting. So as you can imagine, the relationship with the management team was extremely tenuous. The management team was kind of pressured into not disclosing it to us by their previous owner. Things get ugly if you don't disclose. I would highly recommend that everything come out in the beginning. People are going to find out at some point. I agree with Brad. He made, he made a great point on the attorney, which is you really want a transactional attorney who, who gets things closed. Um, you can, the, plenty of attorneys can get involved in a process and prevent a close. And so, you know, it, 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 it does happen that way as well. Cause my, my typical view is business people who want to work together, figure out a way to get it done. Kind of like Brad, you know, we actually had a transaction that we closed and then we ended up finding out that there was a subsidiary of that, of the company we acquired that was losing $500,000 a year. We didn't even know about it until after close didn't show up on any schedules or anything. And then all of a sudden we're cleaning everything up and all of a sudden we're like, okay, what is this company? Now, you know what? We were able to just figure that out. You know, we, we just kind of figured out how to make it work post-close. It was an honest error at the end of the day. They, we did a post-close adjustment of the purchase price. You know, we figured it out. It wasn't sneaky. <laughs> when, when people do things that are sneaky during a transaction, they typically get uncovered. And it usually kills the transaction because it's really kind of a breach of trust. It's like, is this going to be the partner I want to partner with? Disclose this important piece of information to us. You know, I had a transaction where we ran into a pretty bad environmental problem, but you know what? We figured it out with the business owner and it delayed everything a couple months. And we worked with the state. We have groundwater contamination under the facility we're buying. You know, so, but, but once again, you can, you can work through it if you want to work through it. You know, at the end of the day, I think most people understand what their value, what their company's worth. I think, you know, 20 years ago was probably a little bit different, but I think today the buyer seller view of value is going to be pretty close. I mean, almost no matter what. So then it really comes down to how do we work together? I agree with that hundred percent. In terms of like vetting a buyer in the process, just to any of the, any of the panelists here on this one, how do you advise people who may have some non-qualified buyers that are kind of knocking at the door? Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, you, you can 
you can do a lot of diligence pretty easily. I mean, you know, you, you could go to somebody like, you know, or Brad and find out your, you know, who somebody is. You could go Google them online and just see who they are. And, you know, I'd be honest with you, if you go online and you got some solicitation from somebody and they don't have a, you know, a website that looks professional or no website at all, uh, you know, you're probably dealing with somebody who's trying to source, create an opportunity for themselves, not a real transaction. I think at the end of the day, the most important thing is spend time with whoever you want to do a transaction with. I don't care if it's a private equity firm, a strategic, you know, the more time you can spend together, find, learn what they are, meet multiple people at their company, not just one, you know, see, see it, see, make sure there's a common thread amongst them. When you talk to them, you know, is there a common vision in their company, you know, makes a difference and you should date a bit because you'll, you'll kind of get to see the different flavors because, you know, there's in private equity, as it, and strategics, I mean, there's a lot of different cultures there that exist, and you know, finding the culture that fits for you and your organization takes some time. So I usually, you know, recommend people don't rush anything. Yeah, it's not you're not selling a used car. If it's a good deal today, it'll be a good deal to look at three months from now or a year from now. Totally agree with all that. I mean, I think one of the things to keep in mind there's there's character and there's also quality. And there's also wherewithal. I would validate that the that the capital is real. You know that there's committed capital behind the behind the the buyer. And you know, look, all that can come out in diligence on the on the on the seller side for sure. Okay. Well, we're we're right here at the end of our time together. I want to thank all of our panelists, John, Brad, and Kurt, for your time and your your thoughts today. It was really insightful. Hopefully, it was very helpful to everybody who attended. Thanks again to Brad Jay and our panel of experts today. It was a great discussion, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. We'll be back soon with more episodes of Beyond the Numbers, so stay tuned. On behalf of Weaver, I'm James Kent. We look forward to talking to you again. <laughs>